You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Alright, last week we began discussing the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven. What exactly does that mean? Well, that means that essentially our paradigm, our lifestyle, our viewpoint is going to be in many ways diametrically opposed to those outside of the kingdom. We said that typically, naturally, one's paradigm is such that the first are first and the last are last. And that greatness is defined by having the most service. Well, in the kingdom, in the upside-down kingdom of heaven, we view things differently. The first are last. The last are first. Whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant... And we do not define greatness by who has the most servants, but by who looks the most like a servant. In short, the best serve the rest. Well, this morning we're going to continue to look at the upside-down nature of the heavenly kingdom. And our sermon text for this morning will be in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as you do, I will kind of set up the context for you. Jesus has come on the scene and began to preach and teach that the kingdom of heaven is near, going throughout Israel. He's gathered to himself a group of close followers, 12 who he designated as apostles, into whom he poured more intimately than others. As he went throughout the nation of Israel, healing, performing miracles, and teaching Others began to join in with the twelve and follow behind him, listening into his teachings, considering themselves to be his followers, his disciples. And it is at this point that we pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Now, before we jump right in, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice a footnote on verse 35. That should be a, a, a small superscript right there next to the verse or at the end of the verse. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it should say something to the effect of the Greek word here means either life or soul. And then it should say something like same thing in verse 36 and 37. Um, draw that to your attention because when the translators of the scriptures who translated it from the original Greek into English had to make a decision between how they wanted to translate these words. And in this particular passage, they did so in an inconsistent way. And I think that it would be more consistent to translate that word as life. So as we read through the text, rather than saying soul in the latter verses, I will translate it consistently as life. So I just want to draw that to your attention before we get rolling. So beginning in verse 34, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their life? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man 
that is him, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So, we see here that once again, Jesus takes one's natural inclinations and turns them upside down. Just as naturally we tend to think first or first, last or last, and he says, no, 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 in the kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, first or last, and the last or first. So also, one tends to naturally think that if I want to preserve my life, if I want to save my life, then I'm going to do whatever is in my power, in my own strength, to try to preserve my life, to try to save my life. Jesus turns that upside down and on its head and inside out and says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Talk about upside down. Let's unpack that verse by verse. In verse 34 we read, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now you have to understand that up to this point, it had been relatively risk-free to follow Jesus. It's like free 30-day trial period. No <laughs> obligations. You're good. Golden. Not a problem. Jesus is growing in popularity. They're growing in popularity. They have everything to gain, nothing to lose. Everybody's cool with Jesus. Everybody's cool with them. Now Jesus points out here, hey, Everything's been hunky-dory up to this point. Everything's been smooth. Everything's been all right. Just want to let you in on the fine print. Up to this point, it's been okay. It's about to get rough. And I just want you to know where this road goes. If you want to keep following me, if you want to call yourself my disciple and literally follow behind me, just so you know where this road goes... It goes to the cross. That's where I'm headed. And if you're following after me, that's where you're headed too. Things are about to get rough. And I just want to let you know what you're getting yourself into by being my disciple. Going to the cross. And you will experience more than likely a similar fate. You will likely be put to death. And many of you will experience the same type of death, a bloody, gory crucifixion. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Now when we think of cross here in America 2,000 years later, we have a skewed view of that word because we tend to think of shiny gold necklaces. We've got this very sterilized, sanitary view of the cross. Not so. The cross is gory. The cross is bloody. The cross is an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of death. And so for Jesus to say, take up your cross and follow me, you're essentially on death row, on your way to be put to death. Life is over for you at this point. If with our jewelry we are attempting to convey the message of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, a better modern day version is to hang upon our bling a electric chair. That would communicate more accurately to our modern day culture 
what is represented by the cross. We don't crucify people here in America 2,000 years later, but they did then. So no more fun and games. Being a follower of me at this point is no longer simply you just get to get the front row and whoop, whoop at all my miracles. You no longer get to just, you know, tag along and be more and more popular. It's no longer just about those things. It's no longer just fun and games. It's no longer just listening in on my parables, wondering what the heck is he talking about. From now on, it's going to include being hated being persecuted, and probably being put to death. Just so you know what you're signing up for here. Whoever wants to be my disciple and follow after me must deny himself and take up his cross. Now he continues, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. For whoever wants to save their life. Now that's virtually everybody. Virtually everybody in their right mind recognizes the beauty and the value of human life. And thus seeks to preserve it. Everybody in their right mind would do just about anything in their power to save their life, to preserve their life. That's why life preservers exist. That's why bulletproof vests exist. That's why doctors are in business. That's why we take medicine and vitamins and why some people exercise and eat healthy. Because just about everybody in their right mind, now of course there is the exception to the rule, the occasional emo kid and the suicide bomber, but those are the exceptions. Generally speaking, People recognize the value of human life, and thus, everybody wants to save their life. Everybody seeks to preserve their life. We even value the lives of others that we care about. That's why, intuitively, people are sad at funerals, at the loss of one's life. That's why if one of your children was kidnapped and held for ransom, you would do everything in your power to come up with... One million dollars. We value human life. So Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life, well, that's everybody. But look what he tacks on to that. It's a sobering reality. And it's something that I can tell you about every single one of you here today. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I know this about you. You're going to die. Hopefully not today, because that would look really bad on my part. But at some point, one day, I'm going to die. One day, you're going to die. No matter how hard you try to preserve your life, no matter how many burpees you do, no matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how many apples you eat, you, no matter how hard you try to preserve your life, to save your life, one day you will lose it. You will die one day. But, he continues, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You will die one day. But if, if that day happens to come, if you happen to die an untimely death at the hands of haters, not to worry. Because whoever loses his life for me 
And for the gospel, we'll save it. What? I mean, that's upside-down talk, right? That's inside-out talk. How exactly does that work? I mean, if I've lost my life for his sake, how can I preserve what's been lost? How can I save what's already been lost? How does that work, Jesus? Well, in, in biblical language, oftentimes when we speak of life and death, oftentimes we're not only speaking in terms of physical life and physical death, but spiritual life, spiritual death. Okay? Spiritual life is fellowship with God in his presence. Spiritual death, conversely, is separation from God, exile from his presence, lack of fellowship with him. To put one's faith in Jesus Christ is to go from death to life. Sin separates man from God. Sin breaks fellowship between God and man and puts man in exile away from the presence of God outside of fellowship with him. And in order for that fellowship to be restored, in order for one to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, one must place his faith in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Christ, we are not guilty anymore. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. God sees us as clean, righteous, and holy, and thus we are able to come to him, to have fellowship with him, spiritual life in him. For the wages of sin is spiritual death, but the gift of God is spiritual life, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I believe here in our text, when Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. I believe he begins to speak in terms of spiritual life. In other words, for whoever wants to save his physical life will lose it one day. But whoever loses his physical life for me will gain eternal life. He will save his life and ultimately have spiritual life beyond the grave starting here and now fellowship with God that extends beyond the grave into eternity what an upside down kingdom what an upside down message how counterintuitive alright he continues in the text verse 36 just to shed some perspective on this whole idea he says what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his life the word translated as world here is the Greek word cosmon, and it means a world system. Okay? It means a system or a world order. Okay? Now, biblically speaking, I believe this is referring to their covenant world, to their covenant system, namely their Jewish religious system or the law of Moses. Okay? What we refer to as the old covenant. Alright? So Essentially, in their day, the Jewish religious leaders would be giving these people and Jesus' audience an ultimatum. And it went something like this. Okay, either you hang out with us, and you're good with us, and you're in good standing with us, and you unfollow Jesus, or... You keep following Jesus, but you're out. 
And in fact, we might even kill you. How does crucifixion sound? Here's your ultimatum. So I believe that a paraphrase of this verse would essentially go something like this. What good is it for you guys to gain everything that this world, this covenant world, this Jewish religious system has to offer, and yet, in doing so, deny me and thus forfeit eternal life? What good is it to temporarily for this short span of life that you have on this earth, gain all of the benefits, everything that there is to be gained by this world system, this covenant order, and yet forsake me in the process and forfeit eternal life. I mean, you can, you can claim that you've descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you can make sacrifices at the temple. You can eat kosher, circumcise the flesh, observe the Sabbath. You can partake in the synagogue and remain in good standing with the religious leaders. But you have to, you have to deny that Jesus guy. You have to unfollow him in order to do so. What good is that? Because in doing so, you forfeit eternal life. You have all those things, all those check marks, all those things of the flesh to boast about. But what good are they going to do you in the grave? They don't follow you beyond the grave. If the goal is fellowship with God, and it is, then clinging to, holding on to, seeking to obtain and grasp and maintain all that there is to be had, from that world order, from that covenant system, that's the wrong route, buddy. Wrong avenue to pursue. If the goal is fellowship with God, that's not the way to get there. Because fellowship with God happens after you have had your sins removed from you, and that covenant system does not remove your sins from you, for the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that ministration was a covenant of death and condemnation. In contrast to the new covenant, which is the ministration of life in Jesus Christ. In which one has his sins forgiven and is given eternal life. Again, the goal is to be clean. The old covenant system and clinging to what that world had to offer is not the way to go. It's a little counterproductive. I'm reminded of an experience I had this week. I was in the kitchen, and I overheard my five-year-old daughter and my three-year-old daughter arguing in the bathroom. And they were in there washing their hands, and I thought, okay, I'm give them a minute to work it out, kind of let, let them, you know, get there. But it escalated, and so I said, all right, I'm going to go mediate. So as I walked over, it's getting crazier and crazier, and I find these two on the floor playing tug-of-war with a towel. <laughs> and so I said, give that to me. I grabbed it out of their hands, only to have my wife yell at me, baby, that was the towel that was just used to clean urine off the floor. Oh, okay. Now, if the goal 
was to get clean, using a pee-pee towel to dry off, a little counterproductive. Amen. You stay dirty that way. You stay unclean that way. Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his life? What good is it to, to tap into that and hold on to and cling on to that old covenant system, that old covenant world, in order to gain everything you can from it? What good is it to the neglect of Jesus Christ and forfeiting <coughs> eternal life? To cling to that old covenant system is to cling to a pee-pee towel. If the goal is to get clean, it's very counterproductive. That old covenant system and all of its benefits can never make you clean. For the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That has to be done through the blood of the new covenant. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. The perfect and spotless Lamb of God who is without stain or wrinkle or blemish, who lived without sin a perfect life and laid down that life so that you and I could be clean and have fellowship with God and have eternal life. So it's no good to gain the whole world system and everything that the old covenant had to offer to the neglect of Jesus Christ and eternal life. However, on the other hand, works quite well to forfeit everything that the old covenant system has to offer, seeing it as rubbish, counting it lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whom we have eternal life, in whom we are clean. The very means by which we are cleaned. The very means by which we attain fellowship with God. Which is the goal. <clears throat> so verse 37. Jesus gives more perspective. He says, or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their life? You can't give anything. You can give nothing to nobody, including God, in exchange for your life. You can't pay anybody any amount to preserve your physical life, once you die and are beyond the grave, you can pay nobody any amount, including God, anything in order to come back to this side of the grave. And the same is true with spiritual life. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. You can do nothing. You can pay nothing in order to achieve attain and maintain physical or spiritual life. What can a man give in exchange for his life? Nothing. Nothing. And as you survey the scriptures, you find not only can we give nothing, but God is the only one who has the authority to grant life, both physical and spiritual. He is the author of life, and it is He who must provide the ransom. It is he who must pay the price for our life, and he does so in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. It's through me. You 
can pay nothing in order to achieve or maintain life, but I did. I laid down my life in order that you may have life. He continues. Verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now there's an unfortunate chapter break here. Uh, Mark didn't put that in there, but the translators did later to help us kind of navigate through the scriptures. But the section doesn't end there. It ends after Mark 9.1, which says, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So we see our connection here with the kingdom, with the coming of the kingdom. Upon Jesus' arrival, he began to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. And by at hand, he didn't mean over 2,000 years later. He meant at hand. And throughout the scriptures, we find consistently that he meant in their generation. And across the board, virtually everybody agrees that the kingdom would be fully consummated, that the kingdom would come in its fullness at the second coming of Jesus Christ. However, many have failed to see the timing and the nature of the second coming. You see, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ would return in the lifetime of his contemporary generation. Matthew 10, 23. Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Our immediate text. Matthew 24, 34. Luke chapter 21. Mark chapter 13, etc., etc. And so right here, we see that Jesus connects his coming with the full consummation of the kingdom. <clears throat> and not only do we see the timing of the second coming in the scriptures and the full consummation of the kingdom, but we also see the nature. It is typically thought that Jesus' return will be this visible bodily return on the clouds that everybody's going to, like this, coming right on the cloud like silver shirt. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come in the glory of his Father. In other words, just as Jehovah had come throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over, as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see that a coming of Jehovah is manifest not in Jehovah physically coming down in a bodily form, but it is manifest in the destruction of a nation at the hands of a foreign army. And so Jesus here, when he speaks of coming in the glory of his Father, is speaking consistently with regard to the same. In other words, in this generation, during this wicked and adulterous and sinful generation, if you guys are ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come in my Father's glory. Some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God coming with power. Now, Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, which did indeed happen within the lifetime of his contemporaries in 66 to 70 AD. That marked the full destruction of the old covenant system. At that point, their priesthood, gone. Their temple, gone. Their entire system of worship, gone. 
And it marked the end of Jewish persecution of Christians. And it marked the full consummation of the kingdom of God and the full ushering in of the new covenant age. Now, if you're kind of curious about all that and you're like, wow, that's the first time I've ever heard anything like that. On our welcome table, we have a disc entitled How in the World. I would encourage you to grab one of those on your way out and uh, you can find out more about that there. So Jesus here is saying, look, when I come to bring judgment upon Israel in the form of rum, if there's any of you who feared men more than they feared God and thus denied me, you were ashamed of me, ashamed to acknowledge me before men and instead said, nah, Jesus, I don't, I don't know him. I, don't, I mean, I heard about him, but I don't got nothing to do with him. If you're one of those, you will be destroyed. You will perish. You're done. And you will not see again the light of life. But for those of you who are not ashamed of me, who confess me before men, who fear God more than they fear men, and willingly acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you before my Father. And you, though you may lose your life at the hands of haters, you will preserve your life. You will save your life. You will gain eternal life. Spiritual life that begins not only here and now, but goes beyond the grave and into eternity. In fellowship with God, spiritual life is the ultimate goal. So the good news is that you and I can breathe a sigh of relief because as Jesus is speaking to this first century audience, telling them, hey, look, if you're going to come after me and call yourself my disciple, you can count on probably dying pretty soon. Again, 2,000 years ago, to Jews under the Old Covenant, about to face persecution at the hands of their kinsmen according to the flesh and the religious leaders of the Jewish system. But 2,000 years ago, in 70 AD, all of that ceased. So we can ah, breathe a sigh of relief. That's good news for you and I. And in fact, we should rejoice in the fact that we live in a country where we have religious freedom, religious tolerance, and that there is virtually no persecution. It's essentially risk-free to follow Jesus. Nothing to lose, everything to gain. There are really very few, if any, tangible repercussions for you and I in America to follow Jesus today. Let's rejoice in that benefit. Now, in, in their day, as I said earlier, they were essentially given an ultimatum, right? You can remain a part of the covenant community, you can remain a part of the synagogue and be in good standing with the religious leaders, just unfollow Jesus. Or, if you want to keep following Jesus, well, you're probably going to die. They had that ultimatum. They had a choice to make. To follow or not to follow. Well, you and I have a similar choice today in that you and I have the choice to follow or not to follow. And if you have not chosen to follow Jesus, I invite you today to follow him. 
and through him to experience the life that is truly life, the abundant life, spiritual life. Through him, you have forgiveness of sins and you have fellowship with God and an eternity with him beyond the grave. It's a beautiful thing and I, and I invite you into that today. But as we make that decision to follow or not to follow, we don't have the same exact situation as they did because they had that ultimatum. But there may come a time we're not promised it as they were, but there may come a time where we're given an ultimatum, where we might have to choose between following Jesus or fill in the blank. Now, if we truly believe Jesus is who he said he was, and hold to that with all of our heart, then it's going to be a no-brainer for us. doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it, it's a no-brainer. If we truly believe that Jesus is who he said he was. But if that day does come. And we're given an ultimatum in which we have to choose between Jesus. And enjoying all the things that this world has to offer in some form or fashion. Our allegiance must lie with our king. Now, I believe that one major point that Jesus is making in our passage and related parallel passages such as Matthew chapter 10 is that citizens of the kingdom, followers of Jesus, should not be ashamed of him. That they should be proud of their king. I believe that this is a timeless precept that's not limited strictly to those in the first century audience. It was harder for them. It was scarier for them because death was just around the corner. It was imminent. But I don't believe it was limited to them. I believe the same is true for you and I today. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, for those of us who are citizens in the kingdom, I believe that we are not to be ashamed of Jesus, but that we are to be proud of him honoring him with our lips. But, as we've said time and again, in the kingdom, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And Jesus did not come to gather people who honor him simply with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Rather, we should honor him first and foremost with our hearts, and out of that root will flow the fruit of verbal honor. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let me ask you, this may be an uncomfortable question, but are you ashamed of Jesus? Will you unashamedly proclaim him? Are you in your heart so in love with Jesus that you will proudly praise him publicly? Or if push comes to shove, would you deny him? Would you shrink back in fear? See, right now, here in America, you and I have it good. Virtually risk-free. Everything to gain, nothing to lose. But what if, what if, during our lifetime, the tide were to turn? What if our government decided to deem Christianity as criminal? And call Christianity a crime because, after all, 
It's got these narrow-minded, exclusive claims. And that's just not right. What if they went to great lengths to persecute and prosecute Christians? Monitor your emails and your Facebook posts, follow you around with drones, keeping a close eye on you. What would you do? What would you do? What would I do? What would we do if push comes to shove and it got hard? It got costly. If we had to count the cost, much like our first century counterparts, would we be ready to acknowledge Jesus before men? Would we fear God more than men? Or push came to shove. In order to avoid jail time, being ostracized, or perhaps death, would we deny him before men? He says, anybody who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father. But whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And I believe that refers to the judgment and the second coming, but I believe that there is a timelessness to that in the sense that Jesus' followers should not be ashamed of him. They should be proud of their king. I believe that our passage in Mark chapter 8 indicates that that should be our heart. So in closing, as citizens of this upside-down kingdom where those who want to save their life will lose it, but whoever lose their life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel will save it, let us be proud of our king. Let us publicly praise him. Let us acknowledge him openly, publicly, without shame. Let us honor King Jesus with our hearts, with our lips, with our lives. Amen?